Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, how are you? Cheeky. Cheeky. Yeah, it's nice to see a cheeky face on a video call once a week. So how's your Christmas preparations going? Well, we were supposed to have Jean's Christmas show this week, which they were doing outside because of COVID. Yeah. But it was on the day of Storm Barra. Oh. So it got cancelled. And you would have been weeping, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. And I have to say, me weeping, there's nothing charming about it. You know, sometimes the sight of a proud father with tears in his eyes is one thing. Me gasping for air as I'm <gasps> you know, hysterically sobbing. No, no, your... Nobody wants to you're see You're being that. characteristically too hard on yourself. No, no. You... Have, have, you, have, you been to, have you had any uh, concerts for the boys? We did, actually, yes. We had Sam did a guitar concert last Saturday, which was charming. And both Justine and I videoed it. Whose footage is better? I think hers might be better, actually. Because there's been the odd occasion where Justine has done um, very kindly, I should say, videoed things for our promo videos. And, and they, they almost like have a, a hostage video quality to them. You set a low bar, but I, th- I think you're maybe slightly better because oh. of your media experience. Well, my media experience, thank you. Don't tell her I said that. Um, so what else have you been up to? I can tell you about another little marital issue. Oh, I was like those, yeah. A while ago... I agree with Sarah. <laughs> a while ago, Sarah had a falling out with our local dry cleaner. Right. Because they were consistent. Basically, you're going to have to move out once you've got the hairdressers, the barbers, <laughs> the dry cleaners. It's like you're just, you're just accumulating too many kind of local commercial enemies, Jeff. Well, this is her in this instance. So she made an enemy of the local dry cleaner. That's not good. There were, there were many occasions where she was turning up and the stuff she'd put in for cleaning wasn't ready or they'd made some kind of mistake. So she announced one day that she really likes them as people, but it's there's just been too many mistakes made and she's going to be taking her business elsewhere. Which, I'm of the mind, don't make that announcement. Just Just do it, right? Totally. However, the slight complication is I am too needy to be liked to show any kind of solidarity with my wife on this issue. So I have been secretly taking things there. <laughs> Do they know you're married to her? Yes. How have you handled the sort of apparent dis- disjuncture? I have pretended like nothing has happened. I've just carried on. What did they say when she said this thing about they were, she was going to take me a business elsewhere? They looked a bit crestfallen and, and, and resigned to it. They didn't plead with her. Quite, I'd say that's quite tough love, really. This week... You were exposed... Well, yeah, I, I, she said, what are you doing today? And I just let slip the name of the dry cleaner. I said, I've got to go to such and such a place to pick a jacket up. Instantly, her mood changed. Her face became like thunder. And she's accused me of being disloyal to her. Well, I think you, you're in a difficult position, to be honest. 
but you're still going to dry cleaners because you like their dry cleaning or because you just you you feel awkward walking past them yes because my need to be liked is that really the reason yes i think you're in a difficult position in truth i look I, as you know i don't always take your side in fact i often don't take your side but i think in this case you're between a, a rock and a hard place really aren't you but if I had to choose between my wife and the dry cleaner, it's it's not easy. I don't think it's quite got How to... How would you feel if Justine was forming alliances with your enemies? I think enemy is a bit too strong. They're not, the dry cleaners aren't her enemy. She just was a bit disappointed. She's very quick to think of people as her enemies. Right. I think it's tricky. Yeah. Should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes, it's the last in this little series. And I think we'll probably do another series like this in the Hopefully. future. We've enjoyed them Hopefully. immensely of how progressive change happens. And you were extremely keen to do this one this week. Well, it's about the history of the minimum wage uh, in the UK and how it came to be introduced by the Labour government in the late 1990s. And what, what, what that history is uh, over time in the UK, what were the specific circumstances surrounding its introduction at that time, uh, what we learn from that, and where it goes in the future. And, and I think it's a genuine example of like, really good and positive progressive change. And I'm really looking forward to getting into the conversation. And we've got We've got great people. We've got the historian, Dr. Sheila Blackburn, who has done a lot of work and research on this. We have MP Margaret Beckett, who was Secretary of State for Trade and Industry under Tony Blair when this act was introduced. And we have Gavin Kelly, who is chair of the Living Wage Commission, former chief executive of the Resolution Foundation. And in this story, there is a fresh-faced, bespectacled, bowl-haircutted figure lurking in the background, isn't there, Ed? I don't know who you're thinking of. You were there, young Ed. I was a bit player, but I was there. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that we are in the winter. It is a testing time for cold water swimming, but I've hit my, I think I've equaled my personal best. I was in the other day at four degrees. That's really cold. Four is cold. I'm sort of quite obsessively, uncharacteristically, seeing if I can better my current pair of gloves and socks. I'm wondering whether, A, they've just got a bit worn, or B, whether there's something even thicker. What material are divers using? Who neoprene, are I think, is the key thing, neoprene. My Auntie Eileen is very good at sewing. We could go to a haberdashery, we could get some neoprene, uh, you, you could draw what you want her to make, and we could, we could have a prototype ready by the end of next week. Come on, Eileen. <laughs> Eileen and Ed's. Eileen and Ed's Cold Water Swimming Emporium. I'd, I'd visit. What's your reason to be cheerful? I'm going to start off, this is going to sound a little bleak, but it, it really isn't. Do you find that increasingly around our time of life, if the phone rings and it's somebody you've not spoken to for a good while, you get a sick feeling in your stomach and you think, oh God, what's happened? It's a little bit, yeah, but I think I probably would like that about lots of things. Lots of phone calls. <laughs> I mean, that's just your default feeling yeah, on, on so. any given day. Yeah. My phone has been ringing a lot over the past couple of weeks with people I've not spoken to for ages. And I've gone from thinking, oh, God, what's happened, to being excited to answer the phone. Because what I'm finding is people I haven't spoken to in ages are ringing me up because they want to talk about this Beatles documentary. People are watching it wow. and then they're getting so enthused by it wow. that they want to call me and ask me a bunch of questions. And it's my favourite topic of conversation, but generally nobody wants to talk there about it. There I was it. thinking you were going to say people ring up about our excellent First They Ignore You <laughs> series on the podcast. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so if you ever get round to watching it, Ed, and if you want to call me, ask me some questions, and then, then even... You know, go and do a bit of karaoke. I'm uh, hugely available. That sounds that sounds absolutely brilliant. You're listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, for our guests, firstly, to help us understand what the labour market was like before a minimum wage and what events led to its introduction, we are joined by historian Dr. Sheila Blackburn, honorary senior fellow at the University of Liverpool. Hello, Sheila. Hello. We are also delighted to be joined by, I think, like one, one the legend, the, a legend. It, it, I would it, it say is a legend. she I'm is a legend. legend. I, I rarely get starstruck on this podcast, but I do feel a little bit. Uh, you're right point. to feel starstruck. Yeah. 
Um, it's uh, MP Margaret Beckett, who served as Secretary of State for Trade and Industry under Tony Blair from 1997 and uh, Shadow Secretary of State for Trade and Industry before that. Of course, Margaret has had a long and illustrious career and we could spend a whole hour listing her various roles, but th- those are the ones specific to the conversation. Hello, Margaret. Hello. And um, we're also joined by Gavin Kelly, who is Chair of the Living Wage Commission and former Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, which is the think tank on improving living standards, who's joining us to talk about where the living wage conversation goes from here. Hello. Sheila, let's, let's start with you. Now, I, I do know that the minimum wage and the living wage and the real living wage are, are all distinct things. But just for simplicity, we're, we're going to start by bundling them together into one concept. And could, could you give us a bit of background on the idea of there being kind of a government regulated pay floor? How far back historically do we have to go to to find the origins of this? 1909, basically, with the new Liberal Reform Trade Boards Act. Um, It's a very tentative measure. It brought in low-pay mechanisms for four very small trades. The idea was to set a standard below which workers couldn't live and labour. But Winston Churchill, who was actually at the Board of Trade, who, who was really in charge of the legislation, did want a national minimum wage of 30 shillings a week. That's uh, £1.50 in present day terms. But Labour Party pioneers and supporters of low pay were horrified by this because it would encompass 30% of the workforce. Britain was a low-waged economy. So supporters of legal control of low pay at that time, very similar to today with the Low Pay Commission, wanted compromise, a small experiment, something that would be able to be increased in the future. Sheila, just explain the Labour movement. Just say a little bit more, just for our listeners, because they'll be quite surprised to hear that. What was the worries of the Labour movement? Labour movement was divided. But of course, the Labour Party is a very small pressure group at this time. It's really only 29 MPs. It has to form coalitions with uh, new Liberals and also with quite right-wing Conservatives to get something through. This is quite an important piece of legislation. Labour movements accepted factory legislation, accepted legal control of hours, but low pay is a very different experiment. And in order to get the legislation through, Labour also had to gain the support of tariff reformers. Some of these are quite right-wing, like Lord Milner, Fabian Ware, editor of the Morning Post, which later went on to become the Daily Telegraph, and also to swing the media, getting the support of the Daily News, which was owned by George Cadbury, the chocolate manufacturer. But of course, Labour at this point, it's the old old story as well, doesn't have a lot of money. So it's very much um, needing support from charities, the National Anti-Sweating League, which again is a broad coalition to propagandise about sweated labour. And also the Labour Party has the problem, it doesn't want to upset trade unions. And this has always been a thorny issue with a national minimum wage. Trade unions see a national minimum wage at certain stages as not keeping the prized pay differential between the low skilled and the skilled. Those who've gone through an apprenticeship bought their own tools. And the wider problem as well is that you might lower everybody's working standard of living. The minimum might become the maximum. Um, And these are still debates really going on today, which are quite relevant. And just going back to what happened in 1909, where does the social and political pressure come from for the introduction of these wages boards? There really is, and as today, a a sort of um, division between those who supported anti-sweating legislation because of social justice, that people should have a right to a decent standard of living. That was the Labour Party. 
religious groups like Christian socialists, settlement movement workers, and those who said you've got to have economic efficiency. And Winston Churchill in particular saw a national minimum wage as aiming for economic efficiency. It was a great supporter of German efficiency, that you couldn't keep your empire safe if you didn't have a fit and healthy workforce. So quite Darwinian in some ways, uh, quite dark thoughts coming from the right in terms of tariff reform and national efficiency. And, and if you look internationally, are there moved towards minimum wages in other countries? America, America uh, tried to control sweating with home working. But yes, Britain looks really to the social laboratory, which is New Zealand and Australia. And New Zealand is experimenting with arbitration to control sweating. This doesn't go down too well at all with the British trade union movement. Arbitration is seen as a no-no. British trade unions have never been happy about compulsory arbitration, mainly because of our law, basically. We've never had labour courts. The law's very expensive. Litigation's very expensive. And also because British workers have been very suspicious of labour lords who tend to come from Oxford and Cambridge, prosperous section of society. So we then looked at Australia and in Victoria, they did have wages boards. Now, this surprised people because Australia didn't have a large labour supply like we had in Britain. It was agricultural, but it still had sweating. And what people liked about the wages boards was. It was a form of free collective bargaining. It wasn't a national minimum wage being imposed on the workforce from above. It had independent members, workers elected by their unions on one side and employers on the other. So there wasn't a direct state control of pay and British trade unions accepted this in a way that they wouldn't accept compulsory arbitration. Margaret, we'll get on to Labour's introduction of the Minimum Wage Act in 1988 in a while. But as as someone who has been part of the Labour Party for over 50 years, when, when you think back to your youth and as Sheila's describing unions so much more prominent at that point and the wages boards too, for entire sectors... Was this idea of a pay floor, you know, what becomes a minimum wage pegged to living standards, was, was it even a consideration in those days? Yeah, I mean, by the time I was involved uh, in, in my early days, it was, I've got to say, a hot issue. It wasn't a hot issue all the time, but it was an issue of considerable controversy between trades unions. By then, uh, NUPI, which is now Unison, uh, had become absolutely advocates of a minimum wage. But it was absolutely opposed by a number of the other unions, including my own union, the, the then Transport General Workers Union, and particularly unions like the uh, Amalgamated Engineering Union. As, as Sheila says, you know, you had to be a skilled person um, to be a, a member of the AEU. Uh, and they were absolutely adamantly against the idea. And it re- remained very controversial in the trade union movement until very close, actually, to the legislation being enacted. And and what were those objections? The whole feeling in the trade union movement had always been free collective bargaining should be exactly that. It should be free. It should not be monitored or directed in any way, controlled by the state, even though it was supposed to be in a beneficial way. So what would people have said about low-paid workers who fell between the cracks of the of union representation then? They should join a union. Right. And their union should be more effective on their behalf. The other point, just to add to Margaret's as well, public sector workers weren't included in trade boards or wages councils. They were outside. Um, and they were outside because it was thought the state and local government should be good employers but incomes policies meant that public sector workers' wages were also being held back. Sheila, talk to us then about your view of the sort of timeline of post-war Britain and what leads up to the introduction of the minimum wage. 
Trade boards were expanded in 1918 and they were then uh, really set up for industries which had no collective bargaining. We got rid of the whole idea of uh, sweating, um, that they, 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 these were workers who were completely helpless. Um, so 1918 was seen as a, a massive step forward. And then after the Second World War, uh, wages councils became the new name for trade boards to get rid of the sweated image entirely, a completely different name. And um, catering was brought in. That had never been seen as an industry before. So catering workers were brought in in 1944. And by 1951, Ernie Bevan, who argued for wages councils, uh, when he died, there were actually 60 wages councils Covering three and a. He'd been the Minister of Labour, correct? Yes, that's in the right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. After the after the Second World yeah. War, and that, that encompassed the height of wages council workers, three and a half million, and there were quite close calls on a national minimum wage. But again, he argued for differentials. It was better to have wages councils. A national minimum wage was a bit continental, not part of British trade union relations. So we, we, we got landed in some ways with wages councils when other countries like France, America, implementing full-blown minimum wages. But once you expanded the wages council system after the Second World War, there was a real dilemma for reformers. Um, if we implement a national minimum wage, do we get rid of wages councils? Can the two coexist together? But that question was solved, of course, because Margaret Thatcher and the New Right uh, took young workers out of wages councils in 1986, and then John Major abolished them in 1993. So the path is now clear for the Labour Party and reformers to say, this is a national disgrace with uh, the International Labour Organization saying, uh, how can a modern industrial a country stand on a reputation with no legal control of low pay whatsoever. Um, but the CBI was actually quite um, hostile to the removal of wages councils. It said it would leave the way open for the Labour Party to bring in a national minimum wage. And it turned out they were right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, this 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 leads uh, this leads us in perfectly, Margaret. That timeline of events that Sheila's just laid out is is that the explanation of how this was able to become policy for Labour in opposition? I think that's probably right. I wasn't heavily involved with it at that time. It was handled by the employment team and it was it was Tony who decided that it ought to be placed in the Department of Trade and Industry rather than in employment because he wanted it to be seen as part of modernising and an efficient approach. Um, to the economy and to, and to British business, and that it was a concern of business, not just a sort of social policy. But all the background work was done by, as, as I understand it, by Ian McCartney and a whole team of people from the Low Pay Commission and so on. But the mood in the party, the acceptance of the idea, came over, over a period of years and, and was preceded, I think I'm right in saying, by acceptance by the, by the TUC. The other thing that changed was the um, reaction, the public reaction, to the perceived scandal of people who actually, because of, of the lack of controls and lack of ability of trade unions to represent them, were on less than a pound an hour. And that became a, a public scandal. So the, the public mood changed against the background of the overall movement in the economy. And then that brought about a change in the trade union movement and in the Labour Party. And it been on your desk at Trade and Industry it's an attempt to not scare the horses of, of business then? Yes, a, a, a mixture of, of that. Because, of course, there was quite a hysterical campaign from the Conservatives and from um, some people in British business who supported them, saying it would cost two million jobs and all sorts of nonsense. So have it handled as a matter of economic prosperity and success rather than simply as a matter of social justice, then it's placing it in a different context and it's more likely to be accepted, which of course it was. Margaret, what are your sort of memories of the 
process of arguing for this. I think a lot of our listeners will find it hard to believe that it was controversial, um, but it was highly controversial, wasn't it? Yes, it was. We had this policy process, which was very much looking into the future. And part of it was that we had an economic policy commission where John Smith, as shadow chancellor, said social justice and economic prosperity and economic efficiency go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Historically, that had tended to be seen, not least in the labour movement, that you have one or the other. You're either fair to people and you're socially just and you try to help the least well-off, the most vulnerable, or you have economic efficiency, but you can't have the two together. And this is the 87 to 92 period, just for our listeners, yeah. And so all of those discussions were going on around a whole range of issues uh, about the handling of the economy. And so it was John, who as shadow chancellor, first accepted the principle of the national minimum wage, which, by the way, was not popular with everybody in the shadow cabinet, even. Right. Um, for, for for some of the reasons we've discussed? Well, or? yes. But, well, basically, because, you know, I, are we sure this isn't going to damage economic efficiency? Right. Oh, I see. So not for the trade union reasons, but for other reasons. There probably were some who had, but, but by then the TUC had, had really come round to it. So I think that was less so. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there, there were also problems about the rate set as well, whether it was oh, yeah. going to be 50% of male median earnings or two thirds. And um, was it good for, for trade unions to set a very low minimum wage, a lot lower than what was already being paid to some of the workers in their trade unions as well? And my memory of the 97 election, Margaret, which I, I was involved in, because at that point I was working for Gordon, is that we didn't say what the rate was going to be. I mean, we we were very very cautious about it, weren't we? Which I think is yes. which I think is a is a sign of how controversial the whole. We we were trying to argue for the concept, the principle. Yes, because that principle wasn't accepted. It wasn't sort of you know well we accept the principle, but what rate should it be? It was you know is this even a good idea? Well, there was this absolutely hysterical campaign headed, as Sheila says, by the institute directors, but run very much by the Conservative Party said it would cost millions of jobs. And so it was actually the whole concept that had to be fought for, uh, not just the, the implementation. And of course, uh, you know, great question marks as to whether we could even, whether we could win. I mean, after 92, the, the conventional wisdom was the Labour Party would never win an election again. And, and what about then coming into government? Well, then, uh, as I say, Ian McCartney was, was transferred from David's team to my team to actually implement the policy. And that was excellent because, you know, Ian had, had worked on it for years. My involvement came in trying to help tackle some of the politics. Go on, talk to us about that. Well, I don't know if you recall, Ed, but um, fundamentally, and I didn't talk about this for years until I discovered that what I thought was actually a closely guarded secret was actually known to a whole lot of people in the academic community, which is that Gordon did not want the Low Pay Commission to continue. Right. Um, there was a degree of reluctance about the role. Of course, by then, Gordon was, was into tax credits. Yeah. Um, and there was a degree of reluctance. Do we have to do this? I took the opposite point of view. My view was, unless you had a low pay commission, working with employers and unions and academics and so on, there would always be the danger that it would be the Treasury that would rule. The Treasury would simply set an arbitrary rate which suited what the Treasury thought of the state of the economy at the time, which was almost certainly not going to be um, favourable, and that they wouldn't be looking to do the best job they could. They'd be looking to keep the costs down. And so my view was that it was essential for the Low Pay Commission to continue. There was a huge, huge fight about it, and, and a lot of, of very unpleasant media coverage in which I took no part whatsoever except being a victim of a large part of it. Do you remember identifying any brilliant young minds on Gordon's team? Oh, God. Who you were able to <laughs> befriend as an ally in all this. Okay, hang on. I think the argument, Margaret, I, I sort of, I'm not going to be defensive here. I don't think I was involved in these arguments, but I was doing other things. But, 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 but the argument was less about whether there was a minimum wage, to be fair to Gordon. It was more yes. about the, the, whether the rate would be set by the government, but with continuing recommendations from the Low Pay Commission. Is that right? Well, some of, some of that, but but no, I, I mean, actually, the fundamental thing was that Gordon didn't want the Low Pay Commission to continue. Right. He he thought that, uh, you know, sort of leave it to me and when we're working. That doesn't sound like Gordon at all. <laughs> <laughs> and also there was one issue, uh, to be fair, which was whether or not you needed to have a youth rate. 
Um, and the advice I was getting from my economic advisors was that you did not need a youth rate. Um, but Gordon was determined. That was one area he thought of potentially genuine vulnerability. I mean, okay, in the interest of full disclosure, I was not involved in it, but I do remember the arguments about the youth rate. There was a big meeting at number 10, which was um, forthright. Because I remember Tony asking me, if there isn't really any need for a youth rate, why do you think Gordon is insisting on it? Like I said something like, I don't know, I suspect it's some kind of macho thing <laughs> that he, he has to win something out of this, which was not the kind of thing that people customarily said in, in number 10 to Tony and Gordon. To be fair to Gordon, the arguments were really still about these economic questions, weren't they? Was it going to cost jobs? Was it not going to cost? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jobs, Gavin. Were you? I forgive my bad memory here. Were you? Where? What were you doing at this point? I was just starting. Work at Downing Street as a the most junior bod in the policy unit, right. I think, at that stage. But my uh, my reflections and memories of that period were kind of first of all, like the two million job threat, if you like, was a really big deal. I mean, it just feels bizarre. It, I mean, just it really does feel bizarre now. But that was just like a big thing that had hung around through the nineties. So there was trepidation. That's one memory. The, the, the second thing is. Where at that time, and it's really interesting how it was taught, the minimum wage was talked about at the beginning compared to how we talk about it today. Because at the beginning, a lot of the focus and the rhetoric was about dealing with the worst forms of exploitation of poverty pay right at the bottom of the labour market. So it was kind of about stamping out labour market abuses as much as fundamentally changing the distribution of pay in the kind of bottom half, whole bottom half of the labour market, which is more kind of where we're getting to in the 2020s. And my other reflection looking back is just how important was George Bain, the first chair of the Low Pay Commission, he was really important in actually those negotiations about both in terms of seeing off some of the criticisms from employers, but also in seeing off some voices in government who were saying the Low Pay Commission isn't really the way to do this. He is the master negotiator, this guy. Um, and he played, you know, when in the story of how we came to have a decent wage law in this country, he deserves his own chapter. You're 100% right. Um, a great guy, um, brilliant, you know, had all the arguments at his fingertips, had the academic credentials, and just as a human being, very kind of reassuring. So, you know, if you were Tony and nervous, because the other thing in the background of this that we haven't really talked about, and I don't know, this is my own feeling, but there was a considerable problem of youth unemployment. You felt that we were going to have a whole lost generation. And it was, it was such a relief. It was fantastic that that actually was resolved. I don't think anybody remembers anymore how impossible it seemed that it could be done. And then we should say that the, the, the minimum wage then is set in 1999 at £3.60. And the Low Pay Commission, just again for the sake of clarity, is, is, a, is a combination of trade unions, employers and chaired by George Bain. And then you take legislation through, Margaret. Is that right? Ian did all the hard policy work of preparation in opposition. And, and I, when push came to shove, I did the political fighting. And did it feel seismic when when it had gone through and, and when you started seeing the effects of it? Talk to us about when you started realising what an effect this was having on people and on the country. There are two things I would pick out as to where it felt seismic. One was making the statement in the House, um, for which I think Tony was present, which was unusual. And somebody, I forget who, um, probably John Redwood, because uh, he was my opposite number, um, saying sort of, oh, but you failed, you've, you've lost your battle, sort of thing. And I remember saying, look, to me, what matters is there's going to be a national minimum wage. And that, to me, is an enormous achievement. And that's what really matters. And the details, you know, are, are a bit neither here nor there. And it was quite a thing in the house. That was one of the moments that really kind of I felt. And the other one, funnily enough, 
was when it actually came in, which was quite a long time later. And the driver I had at the time, a lovely man called Ian Owens, um, in fact, we got his Christmas card yesterday, said to me, you know, we've got a family friend, a woman, she's been on very low pay, and now you've brought the minimum wage in. She's getting an extra £100 a month, and it has transformed her life. And that really, that's what you come into politics for. Could we also add, when wages councils were abolished, two-thirds of the people receiving wages council rates were women, mainly it's a gendered segregation of work, hotel catering, tailoring, shop distribution. So the national minimum wage was actually helped out because the Equal Pay Act didn't seem to be delivering the goods as it should do, really. So national minimum wage was that extra push to help women's wages. Gavin, can I just bring you in to say something about the academic picture on this? Because I think I'm right in saying, and I think David Card, one of the people who worked on this, has just won the Nobel Prize um, in economics for his work on low pay and minimum wages. There was, in the background, there was a quite a sharp turn of of academic thinking about minimum wages and whether they really cost jobs. Is that right? That's completely right. And I'd say that kind of really, that was going on from the late 80s and it kind of really gathered momentum through the 1990s. So it was definitely a big part of the background, if you like, to where this came from. I think part of the background was the fact that wages councils had been abolished and there was a big question as to, you know, for, for incoming Labour governors. It needed a policy on low pay and wages councils had gone. And at that stage, there wasn't much appetite for bringing them back um, in, in the way that they'd been there in the 80s. And secondly, there'd been this big rethinking in academia about how labour markets work at the bottom end and basically the traditional model, without getting too geeky, of kind of, of flexible labour markets. And, and, and what the traditional way of thinking about labour markets is that they clear a market price and if you mess around with that market price, necessarily people will lose their jobs. More and more academics were saying, well, that's just not how the labour market works and employees have got power at the lower end, a point that Winston Churchill had made in terms, of, you know, a century before. And that is not a competitive market in lots of ways. And that gives, economically, that means that there is headroom, that there is space to push up, if you like, the wage floor without costing, without having significant impact on jobs. And people like David Card did really innovative work to show in, empirically how it's the case that minimum wages did not generate the uh, threats, if you like, that many, many employers and many people in politics had long held. So that was really fundamental. And I think it gave politicians confidence to, to make the case. And this was, you know, we'd had 100 years of sort of discussion of it. But this was the first time that a, a Labour government had come in with the real intent of doing something. You know, Wilson in 64 thought about it. He had a committee on whether there should be a minimum wage and he walked away from it because for, for a number of trade union and other reasons, but also fear about jobs. And the shift in the academic thinking, I think, was a fundamental part of that. Were there unexpected or, or maybe expected consequences of the minimum wage? There's a suggestion that it's it's what leads to zero hours contracts big companies cutting bonus schemes, stopping paid breaks, etc. Are, are those things as closely related as some people would, would suggest? Well, I think one of the major weaknesses from trade boards to the national minimum wage has been inspection and evasion. And we've never really um, quite got this sorted out. Um, one of the biggest complaints about wages councils was the lack of inspection. Firms could be inspected once every 20 years and hostile governments just kept cutting the number of inspectors, basically. So if, in terms of inspection, we've still got the problem that we don't really have a list of low-paid workers. But what heartens me is, is the concept of the good employer. Naming and shaming employers is now going on in the Low Pay Commission. But I think inspection and evasion is a major weakness. And funnily enough, there was an, an email coming into my inbox about the government announcing that they are about to take action against various companies for breaches of minimum wage legislation, which is a nice coincidence. It's implementation that matters in the end, not 
having the legislation is the first step, but it's, it's whether you carry on with it and hostile governments can do harm. The higher you go, the higher the rate, the bigger the incentive there is to, to not pay, it, if you like, if you're a low-end employer. And so that problem has got larger over time. It's no surprise that the estimates of people not getting paid what they should are, have risen over time. We're now about 400,000 people a year, we think, are getting paid below the legal wage floor. And I think quite often in people's minds, they think that's an employer just thinking, like, you know, I'm just I'm going to pay way less. It doesn't often work like that. Quite often it is, and I think this is what you were getting at, Jeff. It's things like making workers pay for their uniform, or uh, making you know not paying them for the time that they have to queue up at work to get inside the premises when they're doing security checks. There's, an, there's all sorts of ways that employers who are so minded can tell themselves that they are complying with or not but actually be cutting back on what a, a worker should be getting. And it is effectively a form of wage theft, let's be honest. And that is the main form in which we see non-compliance. And the higher the wage floor goes, which is, you know, and I'm a supporter of that, the bigger the onus has to be on government to enforce it. Or you're just creating a whole different type of problem of having a very large you know, minority of workers who are not being paid what they should be at the same time as we're all patting ourselves on the back about the rising legal wage floor. We want to come on to talk about the living wage campaign, Gavin. Just before we do, looking at the graph, and we love graphs on this podcast, of where the minimum wage was in relation to um, median earnings. It begins at about 45%, I think I'm yeah. right in saying, of median right. earnings. And we now come today to it touching 60%. That's right. We've gone from 45 to just over 60 today, and we're supposed to hit two-thirds, 66%. By and just, will you just say from your point of view how that has happened? It, it started at a relatively low level, which I think is completely understandable. There was lots of trepidation. It actually went up at a decent pace uh, for the first few years um, because I think there was a willingness to push it up, knowing that it started low and George Bain was, was keen on that, the first chair. I think what happened is that in the mid-2000s, a degree of middle-aged caution crept in and there was always a kind of we don't want to go too high we don't want to risk any employment effect so let's just incrementally push it up by similar amounts each year and basically keep it level in terms of its position with median wages and I think that's where you know after 2010 we kind of asked George Bain to come and do some work at the Resolution Foundation because we were worried about the lack of ambition we thought this could just carry on at a a relatively flat level for a long time. So that's when we came up with this proposal that we needed to inject ambition to the wage floor for where it should get to. Looking around the world, we thought that 60% of median pay felt like where they're kind of the higher end of OECD countries. So that felt like a reasonable benchmark. Uh, to a significant surprise, George Osborne then agreed with this in 2015. Uh, he also then started messing around with the name of it and re relabeled the minimum wage to the national living wage, which has caused endless confusion ever since. But leaving that to one side, he set the ambition of 60% by 2020, which, which the government just about almost reached. And then the government set a new ambition and they, were, they asked a, a great economist, American economist, to, to help them. And he said that he thought the highest you could reasonably try and go for the next few years was to 66% of median pay. And so that is now the current ambition to be reached by 2024. I mean, just to sort of say something about my minor role in this, which is that when I was leader in between 2010, 2015, and Gavin, you and I had a lot of discussions about this. The whole debate was, should we just be leaving this to the low pay commission? Or should we inject not just ambition, but sort of political judgment into this about setting targets, setting. And I kept being warned the Low Pay Commission is going to resign collectively en masse if you say, you know, if you go too far and so on. And I, But I think what's happened is that, and I think Osborne was partly doing it in the context, correct me if I'm wrong, of cuts in social security spending. So he was wanting to sort of compensate for those cuts. But there is much more of a cross-party consensus about pushing this now, isn't there? Completely. There is a cross-party consensus. And first of all, that's an incredibly positive thing, right? I mean, I just think, you know, there's, lot, there's lots of things, lots of problems in our country, God knows. But the fact that we do, we're not at war with each other different, across different sides of politics about, about whether there should be a minimum wage and about pushing it up. There'll be, some people want to go further, and that's right and proper, and that's a good debate to have. 
But it's really positive that we've got that. But let's be clear about why we've got it. We've got it because decades and decades of scaremongering about the impacts of having a minimum wage have categorically been proven to be scaremongering and wrong. Sometimes it takes countries a while to realise things, and we've, we've realised that now. So that's the big reason. It's also become incredibly popular. I mean, no political party trying to, you know, garner support would oppose this because they're just it's so popular i think it's also the case that we've had wage stagnation over the last decade and governments have been casting around looking for levers to try and do stuff on on pay and we have you know the minimum wages is clearly one of those and i think there was also a, as you've intimated uh, ed's a desire for some cover if you like for some welfare cuts to to appear to offset some of that so now the only discussion is how high can you go and how fast can you get there Gavin, talk to us about your role around the living wage, because I don't think we've actually explained to people the difference between the living wage, the real living wage, which is what you have a role in, the national living wage, which is what the government called their minimum wage for the, uh, uh, is it the over 20? Yeah, it's currently over 23. It was over 25. Just explain that distinction. Should, Should this all be the same thing if the minimum wage is doing its job properly? So the minimum wage is basically set by kind of academic experts and employers and trade unions working out how high do we think we could go without costing jobs. The impact on employment potentially is at the heart of the decision. The real living wage is not, we're not sat there. So I'm, I chaired something called the Living Wage Commission, which is a group of people that sets the UK real living wage and it sets the London living wage. We've been doing it for six, now, six years now. We don't sit discussing whether or not if this will have an employment effect. This is a, a benchmark which we work out, which basically is how much do you need to earn to be able to live a minimum but decent standard of living in this country as defined by members of the British public, okay? So there's a kind of process of working out what different types of families, because it will vary depending on whether you've got kids and so on, what different type, the goods and services you need to be able to afford to live a minimum but acceptable kind of lifestyle in this country in 2021. And then we come in at that point and basically work out what that means. The cost We cost up that basket of goods and services and then translate it into hourly pay rates, okay? Taking account of things like government support. There's a different rate for London, which is £11.5 now, or the UK, which is £9.90. And that that has gone from being a tiny campaign 20 years ago, which no one paid at, at the beginning, to now there's, uh, last time I looked, there's 9,200 employers, more than half the FTSE are signed up. And, and we think our estimate is about 300,000 workers are directly paid the real living wage and there'll be lots of other people who benefit from it because lots of employers don't sign up to it but they sort of follow it without without formally signing up to it so it's 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 become part of the landscape of pay in this country and and what does it say that employers um sign up for this voluntarily obviously it makes them more competitive in terms of attracting people as employers but what what does it say about the the need or lack of uh, legislation on it well, there's a combination of motives. Partly, there's empl- good employees who want to do the right thing, and they want to use it as a signal to keep people. And there's really good evidence on retention. You know, it, it, this is an expensive country to live in, particularly in some of these big cities. And it's quite hard to force every employer in the country to pay a level that allows people to live in the most expensive parts of the country and live a, a decent life. That's quite a hard thing to do. I think there really is an interesting question as like if you cast forward, how high can you go with the legal wage floor? Because we want everyone to get paid, you know, as much as they possibly can without something terrible happening in the economy. And so I think there is a question going forward about what the gap will be. Uh, there's two other questions, or maybe there's three other questions that we'd, I'd quite like us to cover. The, the first is on this thing about sectors, whether there's a case for sort of wages, councils, boards, institutions over and above a legal minimum. So my own view is that the minimum wage has got further to go, but I also think there's a risk in this country that we conflate doing okay on the minimum wage with doing okay with labour standards in insecure employment sectors, and they're different things. It doesn't solve all the problems of the zero-hour contract or the person being pushed into bogus self-employment or the person who's never going to get any training opportunity uh, or the person who's working for an employer who's just kind of casual about meeting uh, employment rights. And I do think that there is a, you know, in a world where 
trade union representation is relatively low in, in some of the low-paying sectors that we're most worried about, and it doesn't feel like it's likely to change very much in the near future, I, I personally think that we do need a new set of institutions to try and raise labour standards in problem sectors. Like, take social care. Obviously, the biggest thing of all is the money available to pay people a decent wage rate. But it's not just about that. It's about whether they have actually do get paid travel time. It's whether they, about they do get access to any training and so on. And I think it's hard to regulate all of that just through national employment law. I definitely think there are sectors in this country where we will be talking about poor working conditions for decades to come unless we try out new institutional answers. There is a sort of paradox, isn't there, which is that we've had this great success on the minimum wage in terms of its introduction, its increase, but we also have had the worst squeeze on living standards of any decade since goodness knows when, and we've got a very high percentage of the people who are in poverty are people in work. How do we explain this apparent sort of paradox here? I mean, it's obviously not because of the minimum wage. I guess the answer is it would have been worse. It's not guessing. Like they are Categorically, it would have been far worse. Whatever we might think about working poverty and so on, wages at the bottom have been rising faster than wages in the middle for the last 10 years. The gap between the middle and the bottom has has you know shrunk to a significant degree. That is not an accident. That is what setting your minimum wage relative to the medium and pushing it up. That, that's what it does. It's compressing the bottom half of the wage distribution. But why are more people in working poverty then than before? Well, because costs have gone up a huge amount. And to be honest, what really drives working poverty has got a lot to do with social security. And the minimum wage is not an answer to having a threadbare social security system. There are lots and lots of households who will never be able to work or work enough hours to actually get themselves out of poverty. And the idea that you can just solve that by having a decent wage for it is categorically wrong. You need both. They complement each other. And look, finally then, we're, we're in the learning lessons business on this podcast. And the, and the reason we've been doing this series on progressive change, and this is a really inspiring example, is to try and sort of learn lessons for the future. What are the wider lessons we should learn more generally about sort of political change and how progress happens from these examples? Sheila? Well, high skilled, high wage is the way to move forward. That's been the lesson from 1909 to the present. But national minimum wage or a national living wage on its own isn't enough. It has to be supplemented by other social policy areas like equal pay, childcare, better inspection, I mean, there are groups like the Institute of Employment Rights who are now saying, is the time right to bring back wages councils as an extra security net and to have a Minister of Labour with a cabinet seat, for instance, to bring in Labour courts, to have upgraded Labour inspectors? Um, is the time right to go further forward? Margaret, you know, you are an incredibly experienced and wise not just politician, but campaigner, activist, and as I said at the beginning, legend. What lessons do you learn from this? You should always be prepared to be more courageous than people think is entirely safe. But I think the the real success of the national minimum wage in many ways was the incredibly thorough groundwork that was done in opposition to pull out the really difficult questions and deal with them. And also, you know, Getting together the people who have relevance and interest and expertise in the field, as we do in the Low Pay Commission, is what works. Gavin? First of all, you have to play the long game in politics and in public policy. Um, you know, Rodney Bickerstaff didn't give up in the 80s because just because it hadn't happened in 70 years. He fought the long fight. Rodney Bickerstaff, who was the General Secretary of Newpee, I think, in the 80s. He was, yeah. And, and, it, and we wouldn't have a minimum wage if it wasn't for him, in my view. He absolutely swung the argument within the trade union movement through relentless persuasion and argument. So I think playing the long game, I think using, as Margaret says, using evidence and research to bolster your arguments. I think civic energy, grassroots energy, I think the living wage campaign has been a really important factor in keeping the pressure on for the for the legal minimum no party can now turn away from that and part of that's because of the the bottom-up pressure political leadership 
has been vital. I mean, you know, whether it's Rodney Bigstaff, whether it's John Smith, whether it's Margaret, there's all sorts of people who have who have led to us being where we are today. And I and I do think political consensus is really important. You know, this didn't get ditched in 2010. It's not going to get ditched after the next election, no matter who wins it. And different parties will find different ways of talking about it, and some of them will want to mess about of it sometimes. But fundamentally, they're not going to get rid of it, and they're going to build on it. This is a feature of our country for the foreseeable future. And I think the minimum wage is a, is a lesson in the benefit of building a significant political consensus. I was going to say two quick things. The first one is, uh, it sounds immodest and I apologise, I won a lot of battles in Whitehall. Every argument I ever won with Gordon was because the evidence was on my side and Gordon would always accept the evidence in, in the end. And uh, the second thing I was going to say is when people say to me, what, you know, what do you think is probably your biggest achievement? I say, well, it must be the national minimum wage, the contribution that I made to it, which is only a small part, because everybody claims credit for it. Success has many fathers and mothers. Peter Mandelson, Gordon, you know, um, the, the politics is littered with people who say the, the national minimum wage was down to them. There's the proof that it worked and that it's quite the legacy. Um Thank you so much. It's been a brilliant conversation. Sheila Blackburn, Margaret Beckett, Gavin Kelly, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Well, that was an inspiring conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I loved it. And I, I'm a sucker for New Labour history. Right. I, I, I wasn't still doing that kind of work by 1997, 1998, but in the run-up to that, I was doing a lot of kind of low-paid jobs where, all right, I was young, but it was pretty common to be paid a, a pound or pound fifty an hour. It's unbelievable, isn't it, now? Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, I had friends and family in the same position. And it was this weird period as well where the power of, of the unions had waned. So if you were doing certain type of work, like if you were my mum working as a nurse, then that you still had that union protection, but there are a lot of jobs which which didn't have that. And I, I feel like the minimum wage, when it was introduced as, as an idea, was really exciting and, and changed a lot of people's lives. So I, I think back very fondly on it. And then on the living wage, I remember doing a radio show in around 2000 and Billy Bragg coming on, and he was talking about some cleaners, I think, in Canary Wharf and this campaign that had been started to make sure that they were paid a, a living wage. And that seems like no time ago to me. And that, that idea has entered the mainstream in such a way that, all right, so to some extent the, the language has been hijacked, the name living wage. But that, that feels very fast that that idea has entered yeah. everyday life. I mean, there's so much to learn from this. I thought, I thought one of the most interesting moments was Margaret and her lessons because she both sort of said – You've got to be really courageous. And you face down quite a lot of opposition from people saying it's going to cost millions of jobs and so on. It was a courageous and methodical. And, and that evidence kind of sits evidence, in the middle evidence, of that Evidence, yeah. Though, so right? maybe evidence is a better way of putting yeah. it. And then also, what's so striking about this is that once, once it's in, it's sort of so clearly the right thing to do and speaks to people's intuition that people who are working shouldn't be paid a poverty wage that it's it's a impossible to unwind for even if people wanted to and secondly it sort of opens up new horizons campaigning for the living wage it sort of op it sort of opens up a whole new set of vistas i think it does and, and i guess what you've got to be careful of so the the idea of there not being a minimum wage yeah. is unthinkable but you've got to be careful that the the pre-minimum wage conditions aren't just replicated in something like the gig economy yeah yeah by, by stealth yeah well that's a really good point and that we didn't talk about that maybe uh very much but th that is a really good point because people you know end up not really being paid a minimum wage because they're defined as self-employed or independent contractors or whatever it is so that is a really that's a really important point of warning send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast well we're in the outro what are you up to as you open further doors on your advent calendar pre-christmas malarkeys i think where are you up to on presents this year well that really 
I always sort of end up feeling like I'm ahead of the game and then massively behind the game. Do you know what I mean? Um, I have a live show on Sunday. Have you? Succession? Yeah, it will have happened by the time people uh, people hear this, but we're wow. doing a, on Succession finale eve for Sunday. We're doing uh, a live podcast recording. Will you feel sad about it disappearing? Yes. I don't know what is going to fill this hole in my life. Apart from me. Yeah. Apart from you. And do you want to thank our guests? Yes, yeah, so uh, thank you to uh, Dr. Sheila Blackburn, to Margaret Beckett, MP, and to Gavin Kelly, all of whom were fantastic. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. She manages to take all these fragments and sew them together into uh, a, 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 a rich Beautiful tapestry. tapestry. Exactly. And uh, these episodes, these First They Ignore You episodes, have been crafted, all the, the research and the guests, um, by Gareth Evans from 1860. So thank you to Gareth. He's done a brilliant job. Thanks to Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed our music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. And it used to be done by Emily Power. And our research and backup used to be done by Joel... I can't remember his surname. No, but I bear him no ill Pierce, will I think. at this time of year. Goodwill to, goodwill to all quitters. He's been championing the dry cleaners. He's been championing wetsuits or wet gloves. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah.